This is Marathon Training Academy, episode 363. Thanks to Bioactive Nutrients for sponsoring this episode. They sell a device that will remove pollen, mold, smoke, pet dander, and other airborne particles from the air that can trigger allergies and create dangerous breathing conditions. It's called the Pioneer Smart Point Air Treatment System. Go to bioactivenutrients.com MTA and save up to $100 with code MTA. Thanks also to the Richmond Marathon in Richmond, Virginia for sponsoring the podcast. You can run through Virginia's capital on November 13th. They offer a half and full marathon plus an 8K. Sign up at richmondmarathon.org and get ready to run. Welcome to the Marathon Training Academy podcast, where we, surprise, surprise, talk about all things marathon training. In this episode, we speak with Dave McGillivray, the race director at the Boston Marathon and a very accomplished endurance athlete. We'll speak to him about what brought him into the sport and also what's it like to direct the world's oldest marathon. And just a reminder, you can get trained up solid for your next big challenge with the help of the MTA coach. Visit MarathonTrainingAcademy.com forward slash coaching to see how it works and what a coach can do for you. All right, so Angie, welcome back. You did the Bozeman Half Marathon in Bozeman, Montana. Your sister did the full. Now you're back. How'd it go? Well, I went into it with kind of a freak ankle issue. Um, About two weeks before the race, my ankle had inexplicably started swelling and hurting so I had to take some time off from running and get some treatment on that area so I really wasn't sure if I was going to be able to do the race at all so I kind of like went out to Montana thinking I hope I'm going to be able to run but if it still hurts on race day I'm not going to because I don't want to further injure myself and if it starts hurting during the race then I'm going to pull out as well because I don't want to jeopardize how I'm feeling for the Boston Marathon. But fortunately, I did not have any trouble with the ankle, so very thankful for that. Uh, the Bozeman Half Marathon and Marathon was just really well organized. It was a point-to-point course that finished in downtown Bozeman. There were a few hills, but mostly downhills, and the weather was perfect. Um, like two days before, a lot of the smoke that had been plaguing the area from wildfires had blown away. So we just had beautiful, clear weather views of the mountains, you know, you couldn't ask for a better race. And yeah, such a beautiful place. It is. Yeah. So I took it really easy. I finished in two hours and 40 seconds. (laughs) Nice. And my sister Autumn finished the marathon in four hours and 17 minutes. Wow. And did really well. I mean, it it was higher altitude than we're used to. So I kind of felt in my chest kind of that tightness when you're not getting quite all the oxygen that you would like to be getting. Yeah. But, um, you know, she did really good and I just kind of kept myself very open to whatever the race experience had to offer. And I think there's so many times when we can be as prepared as possible and, you know, we have hopes that everything's going to go well, but sometimes just stuff happens that you can't control and all you can control is your response to it. And I know there's probably people out there right now who maybe are dealing with an injury or a setback or maybe they didn't make a cutoff during their race. And there's just a lot of things involved with running that is outside of our control. So I kind of was thinking about the concept of having open hands for the race experience. Like, you know, I'm just here to do my best and enjoy the experience. And I don't know what my body's going to throw at me. You know, you never can predict exactly how a race is going to go, but you just have to show up and do your best and have a good attitude. Open hands. Whatever happens, happens. That's right. Well, they did give out pretty nice finishers medals. I saw uh, your medal sitting there on your desk, kind of like made out of wood, has has a cow head on it. Pretty creative. Yeah, and the shirts were great, so really great swag. And you were making fun of the medal I got from my race in Italy. <laughs> it seems like the more challenging the race in Europe, the tinier the medal. <laughs> <laughs> it is pretty tiny. It's like the size of the zipper on my shorts. <laughs> Well, we're excited to have Dave McGillivray. If you're going to collect a medal, you might as well get a Boston medal, right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> coveted Boston Marathon, which Angie is going to be running in a couple weeks. So we will be there at the Boston Marathon. Coach Nicole from our team will be there as well. We're having a meetup. Actually, we have a couple of our coaches who are running it this year. Uh, Coach Abby and Coach Steve will be there. So we'll have a really nice meetup. Uh, for details, make sure to reach out if you haven't reached out yet. We're, we're getting our RSVPs together for the restaurant we're meeting at. 
for years, we've been wanting to have Dave McGillivray on the podcast, and uh, he's just a very gracious guy. He's got an awesome life story and had a lot of funny things and fun things to say. He says when he took over the race, one mistake he corrected was removing a rope that was at the starting line that people tripped over one year. <laughs> it's the little things. <laughs> yeah, the little things you got to pay attention to. So anyway, I know you'll enjoy this conversation. Before we get into it, Angie, what is going on out there? We'd like to give some props to folks in our community that we've heard from either via email or they've commented in one of our groups. What do you got for us? Yeah, this note comes from June in the Social Distancing Run group. She says, I did 12 miles of geriatric jogging to celebrate 12 months of regular running, which I have never done before. I started in September of 2020 at the age of 68, thanks to Angie and Trevor and the MTA Challenge. I ran a bit back in my 30s, but never for a full year. I hope to be trotting along into my 80s. You can do it. We believe in you. That's right. This note comes from Melanie. She says, I recently earned my 300-mile challenge medal and goodies. I've had these items since March, but I didn't open them until I finished the miles. She says, a year ago in August of 2020 was the first day I ran postpartum. I decided then that I would change my lifestyle to a healthier and more active one, and in the process, I've lost 28 pounds by doing what I love, running. Love it. And this note comes from Julia. She says, I want to shout out MTA coach Lynn, who told me I could probably run my 10K at an 8.10 per mile pace. I was like, wow, that sounds a little fast. But I did 6.2 miles in exactly 50 minutes and 40 seconds, which is 8.10 per mile. This is a new PR for me and literally 16 minutes faster than my first 10K three years ago. I can't believe how far I've come. I'm so grateful to have a coach keeping me on track and helping me figure out where I should be. And Julia is training for the New York City Marathon. Awesome. Congrats, Julia, and thanks for shouting out one of our MTA coaches, Coach Lynn. That's right. This note comes from Ellen, who's an Academy member. She says, I ran the Leading Ladies Half Marathon in Spearfish, South Dakota, and I'm proud to say I got a shiny new PR, two hours, seven minutes, and 49 seconds. I am ecstatic as my first half was two hours and 30 minutes. I was able to do a negative split and finish strong using UCAN Edge and electrolytes. My mantra through the race was relentless forward progress. It's a great mantra. It's not easy to do a negative split, so you really got to pace yourself well in the beginning. That's right. So congrats on that, Ellen. You are a leading lady. She is. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And this note comes from Pat, a longtime Academy member. He says, I ran the Mellow Trail Marathon yesterday, racing in memory of 9-11 and in honor of our vets and first responders. It took me a while to complete, six hours and 51 minutes. The hilly, rocky terrain and the 90-plus degree Texas temperatures at the end slowed me down quite a bit. In fact, I was nauseous near the end and got lost and ran an extra mile. Somehow, I won my age group. Maybe I was the only 64-year-old crazy enough to run. My mantra was strong legs, light feet, tough mind. Thank you for your encouragement, MTA peeps. We never run alone. I love his uh, mantra, strong legs, light feet, tough mind. Yeah, that's that's really solid. <laughs> Feel free to borrow that, anyone that's listening. <laughs> I'm sure Pat wouldn't mind. So Angie, what else can we tell people about Dave McGillivray? Oh, man, if you read through his bio, it's just like, like if you can think of any challenge pretty much within the running or endurance world, this guy has done it. And he's done most of his endurance feats to raise money for the Jimmy Fund. And he's been working with them for over 30 years. And the Jimmy Fund is part of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, and it helps to raise funds to prevent and treat childhood cancer. So very, very important organization. And, and of course, Dave has poured himself into... Um, directing, organizing the Boston Marathon for decades. And he has logged more than 150,000 miles, mostly for charity, just raising millions of dollars. I think the stats say on his website, he's completed 161 marathons, which include 48 consecutive Patriots Day marathons. Of course, at the Boston Marathon, you'll hear him talk about doing that after his race director duties are fulfilled. And in recent years, he's published three different children's books, kind of about dreaming big and finishing strong. And so just a really great way to inspire children to take on challenges. So we're going to jump into that interview in one moment. Before we play that, we'd like to give a quick word of thanks to our episode sponsor, Athletic Greens. Angie, I'm guessing you probably took Athletic Greens to Montana with you. Of course, the handy travel packs were definitely with me. (laughs) Yeah, that's the cool offer they have for our listeners. If you try out Athletic Greens, you can get a one-year supply of vitamin D and five free travel packs. But what can we tell people about Athletic Greens? 
Well, AG1 by Athletic Greens, it just really makes getting comprehensive and convenient daily nutrition really easy for everyone. You don't have to take a bunch of pills or capsules or powders. It's just kind of the all-in-one, cover all your bases, and support your immune system and health. When I visited my dad when I was in Montana, it was really awesome to see that he's been taking Athletic Greens since last winter. And both of my sisters take Athletic Greens and swear by it. So it's definitely something that I recommend to family members, friends. So give it a try if you haven't. They send you this nice kit in the mail with your first order. And of course, if you use our link, you'll get the free travel packs and the one-year supply of vitamin D. Just go to athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA, athleticgreens.com forward slash MTA. Well on my way, well on my way, well on my way. Now that I'm well on my way, well on my way, well on my way, well on my way. All right, we're on the podcast now with Dave McGillivray, the race director of the Boston Marathon. Dave, it's great to have you on the MTA podcast. Hey, it's a pleasure and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to uh, your audience. So let's go back to the beginning I know you talked about this in your book, The Last Pick. Can you share with our audience your story and how you got involved in the world of endurance? Well, like any anyone growing up, um, we all have goals and aspirations and objectives in our lives. And for me, growing up in the Boston area, sports was something that a lot of people were very focused on and interested in here in Boston with the Red Sox and the Bruins and the Celtics and the Patriots and the Revolution. It was just all around us. And so what I wanted to be when I was a young boy was a professional athlete. And unfortunately for me, I, I had a sort of a, a challenge. And my challenge was that I was vertically challenged. Um, so I was short in stature. And as a result, every time I went out for the teams, I was always the last one cut or when my friends would pick sides for sports in the playgrounds or whatnot. Um, I was always the last one picked, hence the book, The Last Pick. So it was really frustrating. And at the young age of 12, 13, 14, I learned about the concept of rejection. Mm. And I realized how debilitating that can be. And it can really stymie you and stop you in your tracks from accomplishing things in life. But one, not to be denied, um, I started running because nobody can catch you from running. <laughs> and I just started, you know, I took a different path to being an athlete. And so I started just challenging myself. And when I was 12 years old on my 12th birthday, I ran 12 miles and 13, 13 miles, 14, 14 miles. And I kept that tradition going for 55 years. I'm 67 now. So it's not getting any easier. Um <laughs> getting longer and I'm getting older. So it kind of works against each other. But that's the challenge of it all. That's why I, I like doing these kinds of things. And then, you know, as a 17 year old, I was a senior in high school, I had heard about the Boston Marathon. And I thought maybe that would be kind of a cool thing to challenge myself with. So I called up my grandfather, who was a supporter of my athleticism. And I said, Hey, I'm going to go run that race in Boston. He goes, Oh, they call that the Boston Marathon. I said, oh, well, that's a good name for it. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to go run it. And so he said, well, I live right near the course. I'll meet you at Coolidge Corner. I said, where's that? He said, at the 24-mile point. I said, all right, Grant, I'll, I'll meet you at 24 miles. My brother drove me to the start. I guess you, you could call me one of the proverbial bandits because I hadn't registered because you had to be 18. There were no qualifying standards then. But you had to be 18. I was 17. And I just wanted to do it. So I took wow. off and started running. And long story short, I got to the hills in Newton around 20, 20 miles. And down I went flat out in the hills. And I ended up getting taken to the Newton Wellesley Hospital in an ambulance and Man. called my parents. They picked me up. I drove home, called my grandfather. No answer. Call him again. No answer. Finally, 9 o'clock at night, he answered the phone. And I said, hey, Grandpa, where have you been? He said, where have you been? <laughs> I've been waiting <laughs> for you all night. You know, the old man Kelly goes by, street sweepers go by, no Dave. And I said, well, I um, I failed. He said, you what? I said, I quit. He said, nah, you didn't quit. I said, I didn't. What I do? He said, you learned. I said, what I learned? He said, you learn you cannot go along in life and set reckless goals. You really had no business being in that race. You didn't earn the right to do it. I said, you're right. He says, I'll cut another deal with you. And I said, what's that? He says, you train. Now, there's a novelty, train. All right. <laughs> And I'll be here waiting for you next year. I said, fine. Well, two months later, my grandfather died. 
And I said, I got to do this for grandpa. I turned 18. I officially registered. I was ready to go. I was running 120, 130 miles a week and just ready to go. And the day before the race, I got sick and I got a virus and my, you know, like the flu. And my, my parents said, you can't run. I said, I have to run. The newspapers are saying, Dave, running in memory of grandfather. And I, they said, you're too sick. I said, can you give me something that very few other people have ever given me in my life? They said, what's that? I said, a chance. Hmm. That's, that's all I want. Isn't that all we ever want in life is a chance to perform, to accomplish? So they said, okay. And they drove me to the start and I took off and I'm running and I'm running. And I'm like, oh my God, they're right. This is not fun. This is not pretty. I was so sick. And I got to about the halfway point and I saw my parents on the sidelines, you know, waiting for me. And there's my mother. And of course, what's she doing? She's crying because <laughs> that's what mothers do. <laughs> they cry because they're going through more pain than you're going through. Right. They're so worried about you. And and there's my dad. And what's he doing? He's taking pictures you know, <laughs> yeah, of, my mother, of my mother crying. And um I kept going, I kept going, and I got to the point where I dropped out the year before, and I'm doing the survivor's shuffle over the hills, and finally I got to 21 and a half miles, boom, down I go again. I put my head in my hands, and I just said, I guess this just wasn't meant to be. You know, I wasn't meant to be an athlete. You know, I'm the last pick, the last one cut, drop out of my first Boston, drop out of my second Boston. But then what I call a defining moment in my life occurred, and we all experienced defining moments. And uh, I turned around and I dropped out right in front of the Evergreen Cemetery. And that's where my grandfather was buried. And I didn't realize that. Mm. And there's his tombstone right there. And that son of a gun said he'd be there hmm. waiting for me. Now, maybe he wasn't there physically, but he was there spiritually. And he kept his end of the deal. My grandfather's buried on the Boston Marathon course. Wow. Who would have thought? And I picked myself up and I finished. And I finished in like four and a half hours. And I said to myself on that day in 1973 that I would run this race every year for the rest of my life and honor a tribute of the lesson my grandfather taught me about earning the right to do these things. And this October will be my 49th consecutive Boston. That's awesome. What a, what a great origin story. Yeah. But we all have them, you know. It, it's funny because a lot of times I'm standing in front of an audience and there's a whole bunch of people and I say, well, who's running the marathon tomorrow? And all the hands go up. So well, who thought when they were 10 that they would ever run a marathon? No hands go up. I said, right. well, what happened between then and now? Something happened. There was a defining moment in your life that made you say, someday I'm going to do this. I'm going to commit and I'm going to work hard. And I'm going to earn the right. And it happens to all of us. So yeah, that just really drives home the point that if you hadn't faced those challenges and, you know, you had to believe in yourself and you had to have your grandpa believing in you to get that inner fire. And without that inner fire, if everything had probably been easy for you, as far as athletics go, maybe you would never have developed um, mm. that and been able to go forward and take on so many, you know, amazing endurance challenges, raise so much money for charity. I think it really that crucible that you went through has helped develop that in your life. It just talks about turning negatives into a positive. You know, I've always felt the comeback is stronger than the setback. And such was the case for me then. And such was the case for Boston after the bombing in 2014. And such is the case now going through this pandemic. And, you know, with the pandemic, it's affected everyone in the world, not just someone from Boston or someone from Medford, where I grew up. It's all of us now experiencing a tragedy, but we have to sort of put on our big boy pants and say, hey, we, we can get through this and we're going to be stronger on the way out than we were on the way in. Yeah, so true. So you mentioned you grew up in Medford, Massachusetts, and I also read that you ran from Medford, Oregon, all the way across the country to Medford, Mass. Tell our audience uh, what that was like. Sure. Well, a, a friend of mine had biked across the country and I thought in a silly way, that if he can bike across, I can run across. <laughs> kind of an idiotic comparison because biking and running are a little different, but I wasn't a biker, I was a runner. So sticking with the advice of my grandfather, earning the right, I basically committed to myself that I was going to try to do this. So I worked really hard, trained for four years, and then committed to doing it. And so um, interestingly, I was working in the John Hancock Tower 
near the finish line of the Boston Marathon at the time. And I was just staring out the window and I saw Fenway Park, where I always wanted to play second base, but never made it there. And I saw a sign out in right field and the sign said, help make a dream come true, support the Jimmy Fund. And the Jimmy Fund is the fundraising arm of the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. And I just thought, you know, maybe that's what I'll do. I'll combine my personal goal of running across this country with philanthropy. And so I picked up the phone, called the Jimmy Fund. They said they would support me. And I said, well, the first thing I need to do, I need to learn what the Jimmy Fund really is all about. So I went and visited with those kids. And I knew at the time that the battle that I was about to fight by running over five and a half million footsteps across America was in no way as difficult as that battle that these kids are fighting for their own life. And I saw a sign in the Jimmy Fund Clinic and the sign said, God made only so many perfect heads. The rest of them have hair on it. (laughs) And again, it's that classic example of turning negatives into a positive. These kids are really sick, but they trust us to help them. They have courage and they have guts and the will to live. And so I said, well, if they can go through these kinds of challenges, I can certainly get myself across America. And so I did it for the benefit of the Jimmy Fund. And I flew out to Seattle, Washington, started ceremonially in the kingdom in Seattle during a Red Sox Seattle Mariners baseball game. And then I flew down to Medford, Oregon. And then I ran 3,452 miles, averaged between 45, 50 miles every single day, no days off, and finished um, 80 days later in front of 32,000 people Hmm. in Fenway Park. And that's when I realized I had become the athlete that I truly wanted to be. I always wanted to play second base at Fenway Park for the Red Sox. But if I can't play in Fenway, well, I'm going to run in Fenway. And, (laughs) you know, I had 32,000 people on their feet yelling and screaming for 10 minutes. And, um, you know, almost envisioning that could have been me up at the plate, you know, hitting that winning home run someday. But things happen for a reason. I took another path and um, it all worked out. There's not that many baseball players that get that kind of ovation. No, it was interesting because as I was announced to come out, I come out of the left field wall and um, they said, just run around the warning track, get to home plate, you know, wave, say a few words and, you know, exit the park and the game will start. And I said, okay, well, I come out on the field and they were cheering and screaming. The players come out of the dugout. You know, the media was going nuts. Hmm. And I just said, the heck with this. I just ran all the way across the continent. I'm going to keep going. So I kept going around and around. <laughs> you know, I felt like they were going to call the police on me and say, get this guy off the field. You know, we're going to stop this game. But um, no, to this day, it was the highlight of my athletic career. And and then, you know, once that all happened, interestingly, I was I, I was a math major. And I was studying to become an actuary and um, working in the Hancock Tower. And when I got back, my boss said, well, you'll be back to work tomorrow. You've been gone for three months. I said, well, I need a couple of days to recover from running across (laughs) the continent. And uh, four days later, I got a termination letter. He he fired me from my job. And I went, my God, I just ran across the country to raise money for sick kids. And I got fired. And, you know, as I look back on that, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Mm. Because then I started following my passion and following my heart. And so I opened up an athletic footwear and clothing store in my hometown of Medford. And then I started putting on events to promote the store. And then I realized I like putting events on more than shoes on people's feet. (laughs) And um, sold the store and developed DMSE Sports and an event management company when most people didn't think it could be done and I couldn't earn a living putting on road races. And I would say to them, I'm not, that's where you're wrong. I'm not just putting on road races. Oh no, what are you doing? What I'm doing is I'm helping to raise the level of self-confidence and self-esteem of tens of thousands of people. Because that's the end product. That's the end result of what we do is trying to make people feel good about themselves. And I knew that then back in the you know, early 80s. And it, it's exactly what happened over the years. Philanthropy entered the space. People started believing in themselves. The walls of intimidation crumbled. And, um, you know, it just grew and grew and grew as to, to what it is today. So I'm very fortunate that I was able to eventually combine my hobby, my passion of running and everything associated with running with a vocation and earning a living from it doesn't get any better than that. 
Yeah, that's that's amazing. And so it was it in 1988 that you became the technical director for the Boston Marathon? Yeah, so in 87, they had some situations at the start where, you know, the race used to start at high noon and there was the official starter on the status platform and he looked at his watch and it was noon and he fired the gun. Well, he didn't look on the road and there was a rope across the starting line and runners started tripping over the rope. (laughs) Who was the defending champ actually tripped on the rope and did a, did a rollover and came right back up on his feet. But in that same year, there was a wheelchair collision halfway down the first hill of the race and, a lot of wheelchair athletes got hurt and whatnot. And hmm. so the BAA decided that, you know, they needed to hire somebody to take a closer look at all this. So that's when they hired me in 88 as the technical coordinator. And I mean, basically, I did two things. One is I, I made the wheelchair start a control start and I put vehicles in front of it and controlled the pace going down the first half mile. And then the cars took off and they were free to race. So there was never an accident at the start of the marathon again. Right. And then with the rope, I just took the rope away. <laughs> I took the rope away. And I've had the job for 35 years. Huh? Brilliant. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. <laughs> but, you know, then my role expanded from technical coordinator to technical director to race director. And, you know, now, you know, I pretty much oversee all the logistics and operations of the event. You know, in the early years, you know, I truly was doing a lot of hands-on directing. You know, I mean, there was only seven of us working on the race, you know, so I, I, I did a lot of, lot of the stuff on my own. And then as the organization grew, when the organizing committee grew and, you know, we delegated more and more out, then my job became less of what I would call a director and more of a conductor. Yeah. And, you know, you've got some of the best in the business with 10, 20, 30, 40 years of experience in the various disciplines that make up an event like this. And, um, you know, my job is just to make sure it all comes together harmoniously, you know. And I always also said that, you know, this race, the Boston Marathon, which is celebrating its 125th year in October, you know, it was here before I was born. And, you know, it'll be here way after I'm gone. And all I'm doing is just helping to take care of it for a while. So I'm a, I'm a caretaker. You know, I'm taking care of this thing. It's so important. It's the holy grail for so many runners all over the world. So I don't take it for granted. I mean, even though I've run it, you know, whatever, 48 times and, you know, I've run the course probably a hundred times, you know, I'm so close to it. Um, it still means an awful lot to me, but I also know how important it is for a lot of marathoners throughout the world. So I, I treat it that way. It's amazing that though you have so much familiarity with it and obviously are involved and have been involved in all the nuts and bolts of it, that you still have that kind of respect for it. And and so cool that you've been able to run it consecutively for so many years. Now, after you became the full director, I've heard that you run it after the event finishes. So you're kind of like the last one out there. Yeah, I actually started that the very first year as technical coordinator because I had to make a decision. Do I continue to run in it as I had committed to myself and my grandfather that I would do that? Or do I help run it, you know, direct (laughs) it? And and part of me is like, how can I walk away from this opportunity to help manage it? So I, I said, I'll figure out a way. And I took the job. And then I was standing at the finish line that year in 88, you know, high five and all the runners and but I didn't feel too good. You know, I mean, it was self-pity for sure. But I just said, you know, I'm an athlete. What am I doing standing here? I know my job's almost over. Everyone's almost done. There's still more time in the day. So I tapped the state police trooper on the shoulder and I said, officer, will you do me a favor? What's that? Will you drive me back to the start? He says, why did you forget something? (laughs) I said, yeah, I forgot to run. (laughs) So he drove me back. I started at eight o'clock at night and finished a little after 11. And um, I've done it that way for the last 34 years. I've been the last finisher of the Boston Marathon for, for 34 years. Back then, I, I mean, I was in my 30s. <laughs> so it wasn't as big of a deal. Now, as you get older and the aging process and stuff, it gets harder and harder, obviously. You get slower and slower, you know, and I'm on my feet. I'm not looking for any pats on the back, but I'm on my feet all day. I'm not eat. It's not the best way to really gear up to run a marathon, right? (laughs) Be on your feet for 12 hours. Don't eat anything. Be stressed like you wouldn't believe. And then, oh, yeah. Okay, now now it's your turn. 
you know, right. type thing. <laughs> but um, yeah, I wouldn't have it any different. I mean, I, I have some incredible experiences and stories of running at night. And I've had so many people join me and people at the finish line, some of the best marathoners of all time waiting for me at the finish, holding the brake tape from Joni to Billy to Dina to Rosa Motor. And I mean, the list goes on and on Jackie Garo. All these people have been there waiting for me at the finish. And it's just kind of like a cool way for the day to sort of end. And for me, it's the calm after the storm where I'm able to run the course and reflect on the day and think about next year's race and how we can improve upon it things like that. But I've been able to keep my commitment to my grandfather, even though it's I do it in a different way. I have a motto in life. And my motto is it's, it's my game. So it's my rules. And that's how I play this one up. You know, the marathon's my game. So it's my rules. Well, I think he'd even be more proud of you with just that twist that you're the last one out there running, you know, late at yeah. night. Um, yeah, you've got to know that he's smiling down on you every time you do it. Yeah. And, you know, the, the hope is that it can, you know, inspire other people to sort of believe in themselves and, and make that commitment and do the work. Well, I hope you've enjoyed the conversation thus far. Quick break to thank Bioactive Nutrients for sponsoring the podcast. They have a device called the Pioneer Smart Point Air Treatment System. If you need to filter your air in your house or wherever you're traveling, this thing uses the latest science to actually remove the airborne particles, including airborne viruses. If there's ever a room that feels stuffy, you can, for lack of a better word, zap using the ionic particles. You can zap the room and literally that stuff just like falls out of the air. It's pretty awesome. In fact, the unit will treat three different categories of air pollutants. There's particulates, which include dust, pollen, pet dander, and smoke. There's microbial, and that would include things like mold, mildew, bacteria, some viruses. And there's chemicals and odors that could include household cleaners, cooking odors, and chemicals that are leaching out of carpet, furniture, vinyl, drapes, etc. Yeah, stuff you don't want to be breathing. So check them out at bioactivenutrients.com forward slash MTA. You can get a Pioneer Smart Point air treatment system. And if you use our code MTA, you can save up to $100. Bioactivenutrients.com forward slash MTA. Thanks also to the VCU Health Richmond Marathon in Richmond, Virginia. The race takes place November 13th. I know this episode is about the Boston Marathon, but if you can't make it to the Boston Marathon this year, or maybe you want to do another race in November, head down to Richmond, Virginia. They have done a fantastic job. Even last year when they had the race, they were able to do open-ended starts so people can be spaced out, but still have like a fun weekend. That's right. In addition to the marathon, they also offer a half marathon and an 8K, and they have great course support, beautiful fall scenery, and awesome finisher swag. You'll run through scenic sections of Richmond along the beautiful James River. The marathon is a top 25 Boston qualifier, and the course is mostly flat with some rolling hills, which is great for first timers. And there's a downhill finish right on the riverfront. So you can be part of America's friendliest marathon by visiting richmondmarathon.org to register now. Come discover the River City and cross the finish line on November 13th. So I know how stressed out I get just trying to organize a birthday party. Um, (laughs) (laughs) What is it like to organize an event the size of the Boston Marathon? Can you just give us maybe a look into the logistics that's necessary? Well, again, people say often, boy, 30,000 people, 1,200 members of the media, you know, being beamed all over the world to over 100 countries must be a lot of pressure. And my response is, yeah, but pressure is a privilege. Hmm. You know, it's a privilege to do this. And I'm not a fool in the sense that I know what it takes to do this. And it's all about preparation Mm -hmm. and surrounding yourself with people who are smarter than you. Um, (laughs) And just delegating properly um, and believing in the people you delegate to. And then it's about follow up and follow up and follow up. You know, it's almost like trust but verify, you know, what Roosevelt said or uh, Reagan said. In other words, you know, you can hand it off, but you better be pretty darn sure that the people you handed it off to uh, are following through with it. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's my job, again, as that conductor. And it works. I don't know that I've, well, I shouldn't say I haven't been stressed. There's been some moments, obviously, during the bombing that was 
quite stressful. Yeah. Um, there've been some weather conditions that have put me on the edge. In 2007, there was a nor'easter coming through and we almost canceled it and had to make some really critical decisions at the very last second. Um, in 2012, it was like the inferno year it was like 90. Mm-hmm. And again, people would always call me and say, oh, you would never cancel the Boston Marathon. I'd say, you want to bet? <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, if it was 150 degrees, I'd cancel it. 120, yeah. I'd cancel it. 100, probably. You know, so, I mean, there are conditions by which, you know, it's unsafe to do this, folks, right? Mm-hmm. And if you don't fire the gun, no one gets hurt. And it's really tough to have that weight on your organization's shoulder where you have to make that very difficult decision, go and no go, based on, yeah. you know, some of the things you're, ha- you're dealing with at the time. And what runners don't, and I don't blame them, you know, because the runners are focused on themselves and that's okay. But what they sometimes don't have an appreciation for, there's more than just the runners involved in putting on an event. We have 10,000 volunteers. We have... Hmm. You know, organizing committee people, we have vendors, we have the press, we have all these spectators, we have just so many different people involved, public safety officials, you know, 1800 members of law enforcement. I mean, it isn't just about the runners. If the conditions are really, really severe, what about all of them? Runners always say to me, and I believe them because I'm one of them, right, that I can run through anything. (laughs) Well, I'm sure you can. Right. I've run through some of the worst conditions, whether it's cold in Antarctica or heat in the desert. I've been through it all. And I get that. But at the same time, it doesn't mean we can manage through anything. Right. And, you know, poor volunteer at Station 8 out on the course, just standing there in 30 degree weather, pouring rain, coming sideways, handing out cups of water for eight hours. That's not pretty. You know, and you got to start thinking about them, too. So these are all the moving parts that on the management side, we have to be thinking about that runners don't necessarily have to think about. It's funny, at the 2012 year, the hot year, I remember standing up on the status platform, there's 30,000 runners. And I said, hey, all you runners, (laughs) listen, we're a team. There's you and there's us. And we're going to do everything we can to take care of you. But we can't fit 30,000 of you in our medical tent. (laughs) Right. Right. And we'll take care of some of you, but we can't take care of all of you all at the same time. So guess what? You have to take personal responsibility Mm -hmm. for yourself. I mean, if you get in trouble today, it's probably your own fault, right? You didn't heed our warning, our instructions. You didn't pull back. You didn't hydrate and whatever. And you put yourself in harm's way. But now the problem is, you know, you become a problem. Right. And now we have to deal with masses. I mean, in 2012, we had over 2,500 people in the medical tents. That's a lot of people. This, yeah. this In times of war, you don't see 2,500 people being treated all at the same time. Wow. Right? Yeah. And we transported 250 people to area medical emergency rooms. And what people don't understand about that, you start loading up emergency rooms with your runners. Now, residents in that community who might get sick or ill, there's no room at the inn. And now those hospitals go on diversion, right? Which means a resident has to be sent to some other community to be treated because we loaded up their emergency room with a bunch of runners. Hmm. Well, people don't understand all of that. So we're trying to minimize that, if not eliminate it totally. And that's where that personal responsibility comes in. Another really challenging year when it came to the weather was, was it 2018 when it got so cold and rainy? Yeah, 18 and 19. So the last year we actually put on an in-person race, 2019. Both those years were really difficult. And, you know, you have to start thinking about shelter and potential evacuation plans and people being out in those conditions, the, the volunteers out in those conditions. And that's why we work really hard at, you know, shelters along the course, course disruption uh, plans that all of a sudden the gun fires and they're going and they're halfway down the course. It isn't like they can turn around and come back. I mean, they're out in the middle of nowhere. And so we have to have a plan to take care of them along the course. Same at the start. And we're in a little town of Hopkinton. There's not a lot of you know shelter there. So we have to worry about that. For the first time in 2019, we did experience lightning. I've been involved for 34 years, going on 35. Never once before did I ever see lightning at this event. And lightning did happen. And, you know, again, we had we have a playbook. We know 
what to do, when to do it, when it occurs. You got to remember, this is a point to point. So what's going on at the start might be very different than what's going on at the finish. Mm -hmm. And what's going on at eight in the morning when the wheelchairs start could be very different than what's going on at 11 in the morning when the final run is across in the starting line. So it's all a time sensitive thing. It's a sensitive thing as to where you are on the course, you know, different weather and different locations at different times. You know, it's a moving target. So it's really hard to make decisions based on the fact of, you know, we're, we're not a beach volleyball tournament, you know, all in one little, it's a, it's a very complex thing. As I hear you describe this, it kind of reminds me of running a marathon itself, because you can be as prepared as you can be. But there are so many variables that can happen on race day that you have to be smart, like you said, take personal responsibility and, you know, be willing to go to plan B or C or D. Yeah. I mean, if you're not prepared for everything, you're not prepared for anything. <laughs> right. Right. So, you know, it's funny because in training, I get a kick out of people sometimes. I'll, I say, okay, we're going to go out tomorrow morning, go for a run. Yeah. And I get a phone call the next morning. Oh, it's pouring out. I'm not going out. <laughs> I said, no, that's when you should go out. Yes. You know, you got to get out in the worst conditions that you're faced with in your training, because that could happen on race day. And you better know how to deal with that. Yeah. In terms of, you know, acclimation, in terms of gear, there's no such thing as bad weather, just bad gear. You know, you, you really need to do everything possible in your training to simulate race potential race conditions so that you're prepared for it and you're not intimidated by it or nervous about it. So I've been there, done that. I can handle this. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's a two-way street. Like I said, it's I don't know which is more difficult, running in the marathon or running the marathon. You know? <laughs> both, both have their significant challenges, but that's why everyone doesn't do it, I guess. <laughs> I would say your job is harder. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I would agree. <laughs> yeah. We're looking forward to being there this year. Angie uh, qualified and is going to be running yeah, it. Yeah, congratulations. Wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I'm really excited. And uh, I'll be there supporting her. And we'll have lots of listeners who are going to be there as well. And uh, how are things looking uh, for 2021? How are things shaping up for this year? It's um, going to be different. That's for sure. We've never done anything quite like this. You know, with all the Delta variant stuff happening now, and, you know, we might have had a, a whole concept and a plan six months ago, and here we are now, hmm. you know, adjusting that plan based on where we are today, um, still could be significant changes between now and then. So we have to be nimble and be flexible and make sure that we can adjust our plans based on the conditions um, at that time. Yeah. And that's really hard. I mean, for a hundred plus years, for the most part, and I'm not trying to be simplistic and make it sound a lot easier than it is, but it's almost like pull out the playbook from last year, change the date mm -hmm. and, and kind of do the same thing over and over again, because not a lot changes at Boston, same field size, same course, same this, same that. So it's just a matter of enhancing and improving versus, you know, starting all over. Mm hmm. And in 2014, after the bombing, we basically had to start all over because yeah. our enhanced level of security was just off the charts. So everything changed. And that's what's happening here, too. Everything is changing. So it's all new to all of us. Even though I have 30 some odd years of experience, it's still all new. And people say, well, you're confident going in. I said, well, <laughs> I'm as confident as I can be, but I, I don't know until it happens. Right. Yes. I, you know, if everyone cooperates and does what they're supposed to do, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm confident it'll it'll be fine. But if people start challenging the system and all that, which happens, of course, um, <laughs> then it gets it gets a little bit more dicey. But you know, full steam ahead. I mean, races are canceling right now. Yeah. You know, yeah. This steamboat canceled. Steamboat marathon. This one, that one. You're going to hear about others that I know about now that you'll hear about in the next few days or weeks. And it just, it makes it harder for us. You know, when you start seeing these races all, all around, you know, sort of canceling and then it's like, well, you know, people are like, well, why are they doing it? Well, one of the reasons why we are is I just think that we're very fortunate to have the right team and the right medical team and the just all the resources and, and whatnot. And we can do this and keep people safe, whereas other races, it might be a little bit more risky because they don't have the resources. So we feel confident that we'll have a, a safe event. I mean, everything with busing people from Boston to the start in Hopkinton to the whole new drop and go system of a rolling start versus, you know, an athlete's village and then 
you know, corrals and ways, that's all gone. Mm -hmm. um, I think at the end of the day, the runners, at least I know I would, are going to really, really love this experience of drop and go because, you know, it isn't like bring them out to Hopkinton four hours before the start, drop them off in the middle of a field and say, now sit there for two hours or right. three hours. And you're trying to decide what to eat, trying to stay comfortable, trying to, you know, if the weather's nasty, you're cold, you're wet, you're this, you're that. Well, here it's like, no, nope, get on the bus, bring you out there. We're going to drop you off right near the start. You're going to walk down Grove Street, grab a cup of water, use the restroom, head up to the start, and see you later. Goodbye. It's like a concierge marathon experience. It, it really is. It's, <laughs> you know, when do I start? You start when you get there, yeah. right? And you go. Yeah, you don't have that whole camaraderie of, you know, a whole bunch of people all jammed together like sardines um, at the start. You that won't exist. Spectators, I'm sure, will be down. And, you know, it just, I would just take it all in as a, a very unique, probably never will happen again experience. You yeah. know, it will be different. And it's still Boston. It's still the same course, you know, and um, I think people are going to have a blast. And just to put people's mind at ease, even though these other races are canceling, you're saying Boston's still a go. I haven't heard anything. The BAA is not going to cancel this thing. So at least. <laughs> I don't think, right? Um, there's been no talk about cancellation in the last couple of months. So right That's now, good. full steam ahead. Again, never say never. Anything can happen. I think only our public officials would be in a position to sort of say it's too risky and we have to we have to call it off. We don't expect that. It could happen, but we don't expect that. So your permits could get pulled and it could be nothing you could do about it. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, that's how 99% of the races get canceled is yeah. it's not the organization necessarily. It's public officials saying we can't allow you to continue with this. Right. There's nothing you can do about it. So, I mean, that's what happened last year. I had 35 events on my DMSE sports calendar and every single one of them was canceled. Wow. Hmm. And, you know, most of them because the local municipalities wouldn't allow in the state of Massachusetts, no events were allowed. Yeah. None. No events happened in Massachusetts last year, road races in particular and triathlons and whatnot. And that's because the state said they wouldn't allow it. So, I mean, there's no arguing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, know, you, you, can't get, you can't get the permit. And now it's more a function of the state is allowing it, but then each jurisdiction, each city, town has the wherewithal to decide whether they want to allow it or not. And if so, what the policies and rules and mitigation strategies would have to be in order for someone to put on their event. Right. I think if the last year and a half has taught us anything, it's about how change is just part of life. And there's just some things that we can't control. And you have to learn to adjust your mindset and your goals based on change, because it happens all around us. And a lot of times, it's not change that we desire, you know. And I think that's good. You know, it doesn't always have to be the exact same thing. And I'm the type of person I love challenges. That's been my whole life. It's like, bring it on, whatever it is. I'm out running and the weather turns crazy. I'm like, oh, I don't get all upset. I'm like, bring it on, you know? I mean, and so that's what this is. And we just have to deal with it together collectively. And like I said, if everyone just has to act responsibly and if they do, I think this will be a great, a great event for all of us. Well, I know that everyone listening to this episode will act responsibly because we only have responsible listeners. <laughs> That's right. I hear you. Angie, she epitomizes responsibility. <laughs> so nice to speak to you, Dave, and thank you for sharing your, your stories and your wisdom and just giving us a little preview, too, of this year's Boston Marathon. If people want to find out more about you and maybe check out some of the books you've written or see, see what else you're up to, where can we send them? It's probably best just go on the company website, dmscsports.com. Everything's up there. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for speaking with us and wish you good luck in the final weeks of preparation for the marathon. Sounds good. Thank you and good luck to you running.
All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Big thanks to Dave McGillivray for speaking to us on the MTA podcast and just for all the hard work he and his team do to uh, put on the Boston Marathon. And Angie, since we recorded this, we found out, I guess yesterday, that the Marine Corps Marathon in D.C., which is only like a month away, um, canceled. Yeah, that's that's really unfortunate because I know, you know, since it was canceled last year and a lot of people had have all the reservations and flights and, and everything. And so to see one of the big marathons go down for a second year in the road has, you know, got to be disheartening. Dave hinted at that, you know, that we would be hearing some some news about other races canceling. Right, exactly. So at the time of this recording, this weekend is the Berlin Marathon. So very exciting and good luck to everyone who is running that. The next weekend is the London Marathon. And the week after that is the Chicago Marathon. And the next day (laughs) is Boston. So there's just a lot of big marathons taking place in a very short amount of time. Yeah, did you see that Shalane Flanagan is going to try to set uh, a record for doing sub three at all the majors? Yeah, that's pretty big, um, considering that she's been retired for a little while now. So good luck to her on that attempt. Well, one thing he mentioned that they're going to do is this drop-and-go system at the start in Hopkinton. And as he was describing that, I'm thinking, that sounds better than it was before. (laughs) Yeah, it definitely makes a lot of sense. Instead of everyone milling around the starter's village for potentially hours and hours until their wave started, um, it definitely will reduce the congestion and, of course, just the shivering in the cold as well. Yeah, I've never been to the starting village, but from what everyone describes, it's like cold, crowded, and nowhere to sit down (laughs) for like two hours. Right. Maybe that'll be a uh, welcome change for everybody. And we're going to do a race recap episode after Angie runs Boston. Hopefully, we'll have some good sound bites from that weekend, so you can be looking forward to that. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for being a listener. And we would definitely appreciate if you share this episode. Uh, Tell a friend about it, especially someone who's going to Boston or is trying to qualify. Uh, Hopefully this will be an inspiration to him. It was fun to hear about how Dave first uh, attempted the race at age 17 and his tenacity. And that's what it takes. So share the episode if you know somebody who could benefit from hearing it. You guys are awesome. Until next time, remember you have what it takes to run a marathon and change your life. Well on my way, well on my way.